Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This episode is with Edna Robinson. Edna Robinson is a legend in public service circles. She's currently the chair of the Big Life Group, the chair of the Greater Manchester Alternative Provider Federation and the chair of the People's Powerhouse. Previously to this, Edna has been chief executive of a number of NHS organisations and also a special advisor in central government. It's a really frank conversation. Edna gives her views on the current NHS reforms. We talk about the wider determinants of health and how to support people to live genuinely healthy lives. We also talk about the importance of the third sector and how that sector needs to be organised and professional at scale. And that's where the discussion around the Alternative Provider Federation comes in. We talk about the importance of the lay voice, as Edna describes it, in care pathways. And we also talk about organisational hierarchies and how important it is for leaders to stay connected to those on the front line. So let's hear from Edna. I'm delighted to welcome Edna Robinson onto the podcast. Edna, a huge welcome. Um, I wonder if you could start just by telling people a little bit about who you are. Morning, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Um, my name's Edna Robinson. Um, I'm a, I like to think that I'm a change agent and general leader in terms of looking at social good and social value. Uh, and that's driven by a background in the NHS. Great. And what sort of organisations have you worked in over the, over the years? Well, my clinical journey was as a midwife and a general nurse, and that's when I worked with homeless people, uh, and I worked with women and travellers. And so I became socially marginalised myself and realised that there was all kinds of hierarchies. Uh, So that took me into uh, wanting to influence um, how we could be kinder and more connected to communities, people with social disadvantage, very early on 
in my career. So I took leadership jobs in the NHS. Uh, I've been an NHS chief executive of several uh, trusts, which were big uh, boys only type jobs. Uh, yeah. Enjoyed being part of having large workforces to work out how I could connect with large numbers of people rather than use a hierarchy and so forth. Uh, I went to work for um, central government, uh, worked for Gordon Brown's team for a short time with the communities and local government uh, secretary of state. Um, I've run a health action zone for for the government and I've been housing association chair. And probably my biggest achievement is I've been chair of the Big Life Group, which is a group of companies and charities, which we've grown from 17 thousand pound turnover to now uh, 35 40 million wow that's incredible i mean you said all of that really really quickly edna but that's incredibly impressive so you've gone from being a frontline nurse midwife some worked your way up through the system to become an nhs chief executive a central government advisor and chair of various things how how have you managed that well, I've been really lucky. Uh, I've been in the right place at the right time. Um, I also didn't have uh, children in my early career years, which many of my peers did. So it actually meant that I, they thought I was cleverer, but I was just not at home having children. And so actually I took um, promotion opportunities. Um, and so once you get onto that early rung, it actually really helps in terms of them being able to go. But there are so many very, very talented people, men and women, who in their 20s and 30s don't really take the career projection that they could, intellectually, that they're capable of. Uh, and so they miss out on some of those uh, leadership yeah. opportunities. So I think it was more down to circumstances than anything else. <laughs> well, I, I think... You're being extremely modest there, but just you make an important point there about balancing family life with professional with professional progression. Do you think the world's getting better at supporting people to do that, or is it still a choice people have to make in their twenties? I think it's uh, better as in it's more talked about. I think it's better as in there is a an environment where people will help. Uh, more readily but is it easier I don't think so I think the cost of childcare is extortionate I think yeah. we haven't as a society understood uh, that uh, really good childcare is essential to bringing up healthy happy children and I also think that we've persuaded too many people now that death is a really big part of life and so sadly People are burdened with debt and have to go to work and have to seek promotions because they don't want that burden of debt in their life. So yeah. it's I think it's um, it's a mixed thing. It's, I think it's easier in some ways for people to get support. But I also think it's a very tricky environment that people are operating in. Yeah. Well, look, you've got a, a huge range of experiences there, which we're going to explore as we talk further here so um the first thing i want to ask you about so you've um you will have seen quite a few iterations of nhs reform uh all the way through from when you were a nurse midwife through to more senior levels in the nhs and then in central government what do you think about the current set of reforms um i think that they're i think they're disappointing 
because right. on the one hand, there there's so much disruption attached to them in terms of really rethinking where um, commissioning, quality assurance, priorities are set and made. Um, but they're going to be so disruptive. I'm not sure that they're clear about how on earth that will lead to better quality and better outcomes. And to be honest, it's the same people. The same people are now reinventing themselves with different job titles. So it's still something of an echo chamber. It's just got a different name on the door. Do you think that there's a need for a bit more more disruption in there? Well, I think that I think there's a need for uh, a rebalancing of the debate about what what a, what the priorities are. And there's just so many long lists of priorities that, of course, you'd never argue that things were missing because they're not missing, but they're certainly missing from airtime and missing from deep intellectual consideration. Yes. Yeah, and I, I guess it's it's very difficult. I mean, I know it's very difficult for leaders, and I include organizations like the Big Life Group who play such a big role in health and care, to balance the demand for immediate services, the, all the talk that everybody will read about, about the backlog and things, to, to balance trying to deal with that immediate pressure and then also think more strategically and disruptively perhaps about the longer term shape of health and care. I mean, how, how does... How does anyone go about getting their heads around both those things at the same time? Uh, I'm not sure that they do. And I do think that the short term trumps the strategy uh, constantly. Um, And, you know, the evidence was that there was going to be a a real dip after a pandemic, the shock, the size and complexity that it was. Um, And I think the government did a really good job in persuading us that the pandemic wasn't anything like as serious as we all felt and knew it actually was. Uh, We're now suffering from exhaustion and fear and all those kinds of things that um, mean that people are relatively compliant. And that's what happens when people become this exhausted. They are relatively compliant, but they will become angry and frustrated at some point. So I, I honestly believe that we are now, we are in a very dangerous period because people will just go along with things because they are tired. Yeah. I mean, just I should mention as well that you're recovering from COVID yourself right now. So I'm really appreciative of you still still taking the time for a conversation. But if, if at any point you want to take a, a break or a drink of water or anything, just, just let me know. Um, just to, to continue on the current reforms then, there is a lot of talk about the wider determinants of health. And by that, I mean things like housing, employment, um, that type of thing. Do you think that the system appreciates the importance of these wider determinants of health? Well, I suppose the answer to that, Andrew, is how would we define appreciate? Because, you know, is there lip service paid to these things? Is there airtime from time to time about these things? Yes. Are they central to um, a health and well-being strategy? Probably not. Um, We can see that the level of social housing, the level of insecure renting, etc., leads to massive disruption in terms of family distress, etc. So that's obviously going to impact on the health and well-being 
of children. Um, all those wider determinants of which for me there is only really one and it's it's the M for money. Mm. And actually, you know, the evidence is that people with a decent income create a decent life and have decent stability and have decent health outcomes. So we're indecent if we're not recognising that poverty is the greatest driver. And by poverty, I'm not talking about uppercase P here. We're talking about people who are struggling just to make ends meet, who aren't on the streets in in an old duvet. Um, we're actually talking about families who can't afford to put petrol in the car, etc. And this has been a feature for a lot of people before today. Yeah. And and we've we have created an underclass. So I don't believe that the NHS talks enough about poverty. I don't think the NHS leaders talk enough about poverty. Um, we talk about wages and skills and growth a lot. We talk a lot less in these booster environments about the impact of poverty because we're all embarrassed by it. Yeah, there is a lot of talk at, at the minute and conversations I'm involved in about trying to get the balance right when you're, you're talking about the provision of health care versus efforts to make people healthier or to support people to be healthier, you know, with the NHS backlog, it's quite easy for the focus to be on just providing more health care, whereas actually the outcome we're all trying to get to is for people to be more healthy. And that's coming back to what you're talking about, about a decent job, a good income, driving that as well. So I think it's just so important that we need to keep an eye on on both a really interesting role of yours at the minute is in Greater Manchester, and it's as chair of what's known as the Alternative Provider Federation. Can you say a little bit about what that is? Because I know about it, but I really want to share it with everybody else because it's an incredibly exciting venture. Well, we think so. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you've asked me. Um, well, it's it's a bit around those things that we've just been talking about. It's about bringing into the centre of the conversation how complex and challenging and beautiful it is to work with people with a diverse range of needs. And so um, we do talk about um, putting people into treatment models or reductionist models or management models in terms of getting their health into better shape. And and before I just talk about the IPF completely, Andrew, I do agree that um, the conversations about treatment and the long-term health and well-being are, you know, are often very separate. And I've no problem about that because I think we deserve a state-of-the-art, world-class NHS treatment service. And I'd be the first to say that many of our specialist medicines are amazing and we need we should be incredibly proud of them and mm. celebrate them and it's so it's not an either or debate not with the economic capacity that we have as a country we can have the conversation and be excellent at both but we believe that by forming the APF a group of not-for-profit social businesses across Greater Manchester providing many multi-million pounds worth of contracts to the NHS and partners with the NHS have not had the recognition they deserve and as a result of that they've not had the influence over the NHS and the way it does business. So when we've 
looked at the NHS and what how it might diversify in terms of its investments and what it might create. There haven't always been the vehicles there to do that mm. very easily. And the voluntary and community sector is huge and diverse and and very rich in terms of how it connects. It's often a bit chaotic in itself in terms of size of organisations and shapes. So this is a, a middle of the road way of trying to bring people together to say, well, we can be organised and we can be disciplined. We will also take on some of the big NHS trusts where there are unwarranted variations in health, unacceptable levels of variation in health across Greater Manchester and say, no, Let's have a different look at this. Let's see how we, as a provider community, working rooted in communities with far less ego, let's say, not everybody, some of us got quite a bit of ego, but basically um, we are there uh, in a different way day in, day out. And we want to, we really want to stay connected with our communities, but be taken uh, into the room to be leaders in our field, not just a nice to have in terms of, oh, it's good that we've got a few people from the voluntary sector. Uh, and what types of organisations are involved? Uh, well, we've got, um, we range uh, right across the spectrum, really. We've got out of hours, primary care, general practice services in one geography of Great Manchester, where the GP uh, offer there is all not for profit and it's a social business that operates. We've got um, a range of mental health providers who do the whole thing across the pathway of mental health. Um, we've got cancer services. We've got a whole range of um, uh, very specialist ethnic minority services. We've got specialist services for people who may have gay or lesbian or transgender issues where they want a very specialised NHS services. We've got a whole range of screening services. So we're right mm. across the board, really, uh, and also at scale in some of those areas. Yeah. No, I know that there's there's a lot of very exciting organisations on there. And um, you, know, you and I both know Scott Dara well. He's uh, a previous guest on the podcast. He's the chief executive of Social Adventures, which are a, a member of the APF as well. So people will be, I think, largely aware that there is a devolved administration around Greater Manchester with significant devolved powers in terms of NHS. Who do you engage with? Is it is it at that Greater Manchester level, or is it individual trusts, or how how does it all work? Well, it, it's just just starting to work so we, we launched in July so relative to NHS trusts that have been around since 1948 Andrew we yeah. do actually have a little bit of time to catch up Fair so enough. we've been uh, the NHS provider organizations have also been around now for many or for many years um we, we've engaged at the ICB at the highest level. Um, I have to say we've got amazing support from the chair and the chief exec of the new integrated care board and its new leadership executive team who have all been embracing. We are invited. We'll be sitting around the table next week uh, helping to drive the primary care strategy and the overall strategy for the ICB. So we're in the room which I feel is a huge achievement in a short period of time. We're actually going to be in the room with those 
uh, with those other partners. And I think we're respected for that. And, you know, I do have a very strong patronising paternalistic button that buzzes very loudly when I feel that we're just being used to make up numbers or we're part of being the politically correct um, conversation. So that's not going to happen. We are going to be taken seriously and and we'll be looking for measures of ways in which we'll be taken seriously. So then we'll be uh, alongside that. We're working geographically across Greater Manchester and making sure that we're integrating into the new um, the new infrastructure. So it's very much work in progress and it's really early days. I wanted to get a presence between now and Christmas and then to have an impact after Christmas. So. Scott and all his members, who were all the founders of this, will be getting together in the next few weeks and we'll be putting forward our business priorities for next year. And we'll be talking about that from January onwards. Amazing. So in terms of the um, ICB, the Integrated Care Board, is this solving a problem for them? Like, are they really welcoming this because this is a, a kind of a single body that can speak on behalf of these multitude of providers i think so i mean i think that you know as as ever it's not it's not a neat solution because there are many many organizations who are not for profit for brides in grace Manchester who aren't in this federation mm. so and we've been very keen to create a very loose structure and one of our main objectives andrew is to grow small to medium-sized providers out there who want um, a bit of help in terms of leadership or buddying with others. So we're trying to take the competitiveness out of uh, people growing their market share, which is almost an oxymoron, but it is important that we try and uh, nurture the next stage of organisations. Yes, I, th- I think it does help the ICB. I hope it doesn't make them complacent, though, about how complex and important this whole work which is where we started this conversation is about how on earth do you um, tick the box in terms of improving the treatment offer because people are dying because they're waiting and you know we're not I don't want to be dramatic about that people have always died because they were waiting too long for NHS treatment it's just larger numbers of people now it's also very, very important that, as we said before, that we encourage the ICB to be investing in the wider determinants of health. Yeah. And so that their job is as important to put a roof on a community centre as it is to buy a scanning machine. Yeah. So is is the purpose of the APF to be a voice at that top level? Is that its main purpose or, or is there also um, an ambition that you would actually work together as a group to deliver larger contracts that you might not be able to deliver individually. Is is it a vehicle for that as well, or is it mostly voice? No, it's both. It's, it's absolutely both. both. And I think it's the voice in the short term, and it's the voice and the challenge um, to be able to, uh, so that it isn't an echo chamber, or it's mm. not just a love-in of, providers trying to say how well they're doing because the public are totally exhausted with hearing these positive narratives when their life experiences look nothing like that and so there is something about the integrity of our message that we're not doing a doomsday you know this is all awful out there but we are not going to be complicit 
in a kind of government narrative that says that things are better than they actually are. Yeah. But then the other side is as we mature, organisations who are members will come together and definitely want to take leadership roles in um, some high cost, high investment initiatives in Greater Manchester. Definitely. Yeah. Fantastic. And and it sounds like um, I'm just aware that you're saying that you're very early in your journey. But if this works, it feels like it could be something that could be replicated in other integrated care systems. Yeah, I think so. I, I do think so. I mean, I, at the moment, we're we're fairly um, optimistic, but we're also realistic because all the member organisations have been around the system for a long time. Yeah. And they are not unrealistic about the power and dominance of very large NHS trusts. And we in Greater Manchester have some of the largest trusts in the country. And so this idea that hoovering up NHS provision into massive organisations was actually going to bring health benefits was always naive in my view. I've never been a supporter of macro trusts. So the trusts I have led were local and connected. And yeah. I felt that they were optimum in terms of size. They still had many thousands workforce, but I felt they were optimum in size. So there's only a small window when you get efficiency out of scale. You then have to say, where's the effectiveness out of scale? Yeah. And that's yeah. where we come in, because we don't believe that some of the very big trusts are effective in terms of managing health or reducing health inequality. And together, we can help them to be more effective. I think that's the key point that you've made there. Thank you very much. Um, I want to move on now to talk about something that you and I have talked about before. So you're a very strong advocate of what you call the lay voice. Can you say a little bit about what you mean by that? Um, I think that it was crystallised for me, uh, Andrew, a few years ago when my daughter became very, very ill um, and was part of um, a, a system where she was sucked away from us and, and the rest of our family. And at the time, I was the chair of a foundation hospital, um, but I was also um, a mum of this young woman and her dad and I uh, felt that we were just completely ignored in her her care and her treatment. So much so that it was terrifying. It was terrifying how patronised and dismissed our views of what our daughter needed were. And so that was, um, and that was also linked to my belief that um, as a clinician, I could see so often how um, the patient, the customer, the, the layperson yeah. was not really a, um, a partner in their care and, and treatment. And, and, and Edna, this is you, somebody who really understands the system and can talk the language of the system, still feeling, still having that feeling. Andrew, everyone kept saying to me, look, if you two, and, and my husband's a clinical psychologist as well, and it was like, well, if you two can't actually, you know, pull the system and, you know, it's what you know, who you know, all that stuff. I said, no, it's terrifying how arrogant people become when they become a multidisciplinary team. They think they're in, invincible. Having said that, Andrew, at that time, I was... Uh, as I say, chair of a foundation hospital where we also had um, 
the tiniest, tiniest babies in our neonatal unit. And I saw the most wonderful relationship that people had with lay people, i.e. parents, um, day by day, hour by hour with those sick babies around those tiny little incubators where consultants would sit for hours looking at, at monitoring babies with their with the parents and others. So I'm not generalising, mm. um, but there is most definitely uh, a view in many, many parts of the NHS that lay opinion is actually not that important. And so what's the best way of engaging this voice, this lay opinion? Well, I think, again, we try to professionalise it. That's the risk. And so the NHS has NHS voices and various other things where you end up with an institution that is kind of still speaking on behalf of people. It is an elitism, in my view. And um, I think it's only when NHS professionals have a life experience of their own. Usually, you know, a mum gets taken into hospital or, or their children get sick that they they see themselves in that role. I don't know the answer to this. I think it's partly because we're still in that paternalistic NHS knows best. And so people with long-term conditions in particular desperately need to be taken, uh, you know, seriously. Um, I don't have a structural answer to it because I think it's a power dynamic. I think yeah. it's generally about in life. We just, we all want an expert and the government keep talking endlessly about, you know, the new skills we need in order to make the country grow, etc. But it's not actually about skills. It's about contribution. Yeah. And if we can try and see life as how we contribute to life rather than what skills we have, the skills are only part of it. And my husband and I were very skilled, if you say that trajectory. But our contribution to our daughter's recovery was seen as unimportant and it was massive it was absolutely massive our our contribution well this is the key dynamic i think because i can i can well imagine and i'll play devil's advocate here a little bit where uh, a busy consultant you know hasn't i mean would it would they feel that it'll take more time to sit and assess all the opinions of lay parents in you know designing a a care plan or whatever it is that they're doing and actually that takes up a lot of time and in their view you know, doesn't add anything but I think you're very much saying that it's worth the effort. Well I, d I think that it, it's worth the effort because they may, there'll be crucial bits missing unless yeah. that person's ordinary life is factored into into yeah. whatever that is and that can be something as technical as you know diabetes through to somebody with a long-term mental health problem There's, their ordinary life is crucial to their health and well-being which is what we started to talk about the wider determinants of health so if a person's health and social environment and family and relationships and work and all those things are not taken into account then well yeah. the question is why wouldn't they be it doesn't make any sense to me yeah so is this a sector thing? So you've been in the NHS, you've been in the third sector. Do you find that the third sector, independent sector, is better at this or is it more about the individuals involved? 
I think there's a bit, you know, there's a kind of, because it's so interdependent, the health and care system, I suppose, it seems to me as though it's, it's very, very crucial. But it's also the same in education, isn't it, and other sectors. So we're very privileged in big life. We have two schools, in um, one in Cheatham Hill and um, one in Longside in Greater Manchester. And we are totally uh, dependent on the parents and the home environment for those children to have a really great education. And we don't see that as a separate part of, you know, being a good school or or anything. We would absolutely integrate our feelings about home life and social life as a way of growing um, a child in the best possible way. So I think it's all sectors. Um, mm. I think it's it's particularly um relevant where it's more we're more dependent on on the home life etc but uh, i've found it to be something that i've just got an alertism about when i'm a lay person yeah. and of course then i'm now of an age where of course i'm being a people are being very ageist towards me who don't know me so people can well it's a terrible mistake I can assure you. Knowing you Edna, I would say <laughs> I, I would not want to make that mistake. No, but trust me, if a builder or somebody comes round to my house <laughs> and they don't know me and they oh this little old lady, I'll just be really patronizing to her. Well <laughs> so, yeah. they won't do that again. They won't that do that again. We are all stereotyping, we're all guilty of stereotyping. Yeah. Somebody's too young to have any sense or somebody's too old to have any sense. So we're constantly stereotyping people by what car they drive or what they're wearing or what job they do. And so we've got this view of who is of value to us in that moment. And I'm saying, let's try and stay open-minded about who's of value until we've really understood what the issue is. Um, Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think you've expressed that really clearly. So, Something else that, um, and this I guess is linked really, something else you and I have talked about in the past is about leadership hierarchy and getting that right. So what do you mean when you talk about getting leadership hierarchy right? Well, everybody loves a hierarchy, don't they? So in life there's always a wiring diagram that leads to a point at the top. So it's it's very rarely inverse so that the the points at the bottom. Um but I, I found that the more senior I became, um the harder I had to work to stay connected with the majority of people doing the majority of the stuff the majority of the time. Mm-hmm. And so you start to get a more and more partial version of life the less people you have around you which is inevitable when you've got huge numbers of people that you're talking about. But with social um, social media and various other mechanisms, there are no excuses now for people to not stay connected. But even that can be managed very, very carefully by others. And I find that um, I needed to work really hard to keep soft intelligence, as I called it, and called it. And I invented something called NHS Networks when I was doing a big commissioning job with the with the NHS so that we were able to collect soft intelligence once a month 
and give it to the NHS chief executive to say, this is what's going on on the ground. This is not the view of the trade unions. This is not the view of the Royal Colleges. This is not the view of managers. This is not the view of the trade unions. These are just ordinary Joes telling you how this week has been for them. And what and, sort of information were you collecting there? Well, it varied from month to month. So we just, uh, first of all, there was... Um, a blank bit so people could say whatever they wanted but if we were hearing things coming out from well we were part of the center if things were coming out of the center and we say right this is coming up guys what do you think this is so you could say now about integrated care boards there could be a monthly um it, the new integrated system you could send out something every six weeks or so right what do you think of it all how's it going and get some really candid insights into how it's going rather than what will be a monthly reporting system saying everything's going amazingly or and or there be some kind of heat map about where it's going amazingly and where it isn't but it again i just want to i want to feel and i want leaders to feel that they are available and connected to the front line. Um, and they can't always be, and they can't always do what people want them to do. But there is this real danger of people being um, becoming distant and tr genuinely not wanting to be that, but actually just having a limited number of people who agree with them, who they surround themselves with. And so... And I'll just give you a, a, a very quick example. But when I started one of my trusts, we all had um, it was we all started on our induction day, and I went to the induction thing, and they, they didn't think I was going to go because I was the new boss and everything. And I got the flowers and the chocolate in my office and all that set up, and the exec team was sure that I was just going to stay on that corridor for the for the day. But of course, I went to the induction meeting that all the new staff went to, all my porters and. And everybody who were at this induction meeting, and of course, it was one of the best things I ever did. Uh, so anyway, I went and we we formed an email group. Everybody, I think there were 35 of us in the trust who started that morning. And we stayed in touch with each other. And one evening I got a call, for, I got an email from um, somebody in the group. She said, Edna, I'm on this ward and I'm on my own and I'm frightened. Uh, she was a, uh, a care assistant and she had no, uh, there was no trained member of staff on the ward with her. So, of course, within 30 seconds, I was on to the, you know, director on call, etc. And within another 30 seconds, there were probably 50 trained staff on that ward all looking after her. But I would never have found out that that young woman was on that ward on her own. And, and what, can, can I just, I think that's an amazing story. So can, can I just ask what... Were there any recriminations for that young woman going over everyone's head straight to the chief exec? Well, they all knew that I had this group with people. Right. And I have to say the managers didn't like it. A lot of the managers didn't like it. Yeah. And so when you talk, we talk about hierarchies, Andrew, we're actually talking about controlling people. And that's the problem. If a hierarchy is for a method of efficiency and it's a way of making good, swift decisions and it keeps things strategic and it helps to summarise things and all that kind of stuff, brilliant. But when it's just a way of controlling people, it then becomes a negative management tool. And unfortunately, it is the case that it regularly becomes a negative management tool. People are very... Um, well, just using things not necessarily for the best of purposes. 
But I've always had soft intelligence networks with people because I'm an ordinary person. I'm an ordinary woman from the wrong side of Middleton. I went to a grammar school with a lot of posh people and I wasn't from the right side of town. I know how it feels to feel yeah. that you, you don't quite fit. And that's never left me. I've just always felt that I can have a huge empathy with people who are looking in rather than being part of. And and so that's why many of my jobs have taken me on the periphery of the NHS into all the types of jobs, because I've never wanted to join any club. The only club that I think I'm here for is to represent the voice of as many people as possible. Yeah. No, I, I think that's that's a, an incredible approach and really refreshing. And I think I recognise that as well. Now, it's much easier for me at Mutual Ventures. We work in consultancy and there's less of an operational focus there that needs a hierarchy at all. So, you know, my my ambition is that if, if anybody was to walk into our office, and I think this happens, if you can ignore the kind of lack of hair, grey hair on me, you wouldn't know who is in charge based on the dynamic within the office. And that that's something which is really important to me because our, our team have a whole range of experiences that I don't have. Um, I certainly don't have the right answers for, for everything, if indeed even a slender majority of things. I'm not sure. No. So it's really important to get all those different views and for people to feel okay about voicing them. But I do totally get that that's easier for me to say in in the organization I work in than it might be in a hospital that's dealing with such a, an, an amazing, uh, complex array of challenges every day where structure is needed much more. Yeah, there's, there's absolute structure in terms of safety and control and efficiency in the sense of, you know, anything that's a high-risk intervention or a high-risk process. Of course there is. But we don't need to transfer all of those disciplines into how we make our workforce feel they're all part of one team. And so, you know, the the flip side of having these hierarchies where nobody really shares is, you know, I went, I came across a department in the in our um, hematology department. I came across a world class award winning team who had done some um, amazing stuff in terms of how you how you had an IT system to send your blood transfusions around the system and how you, and I won't bore you with the details, but they'd won a, a, an award. Um, and I didn't even know about it. And I, and I yeah. came across them. And so the amazing work that goes on gets lost in the hierarchy. It's not yeah. all just about individual voices not being heard. The system doesn't learn how to share properly. It doesn't learn how to celebrate each other because it doesn't really know each other. Everybody lives within their bit of the hierarchy. And so that that whole thing of breaking down and using soft intelligence and using methods of sharing and celebrating is just really, really important. And, you know, we have in the big life group, we're not huge at all, but we have a big staff awards celebration every year that is a really big event for people and it's as much about the people who nominate people as it is about the people who win the awards and so people get an opportunity just to share what's going on and what they're proud of and I know there's loads and loads of organizations do that but I do find um, big very big organizations of which I've been privileged to lead a couple um, 
you can just get lost in those places yeah. and not really care that the senior team care about you. I think that's right. And um, you're right that the best organizations do have those award ceremonies and recognize achievements of staff. And you see that quite regularly on social media. And and it's just, it's, it's really interesting. I always read those posts because I'm I'm interested just to see what, what's happening and what sort of culture organizations are building. So Edna, you're also the chair of something called the People's Powerhouse. That sounds fascinating. What's that? It started um, when the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, which was George Osborne's group of business investors, um, brought themselves together and called themselves the Northern Powerhouse. There was a response from um, primarily women leaders across the system, many local authority chief execs and others saying, well, this, you know, there's no diversity. It was just a group of men in suits sitting on the stage. And so there was um, there was a big rally um, in Doncaster where the People's Powerhouse was formed. And so it's been running ever since. And each year we have an annual convention uh, and we also run platforms for racial justice, social inequality, a whole range of things. And this year we're in Manchester and it's the 30th of November and we get together people from across the north, including the mayors, who come in listening mode. Uh, we'll be talking about, we've been looking at the Poverty and Truth Commissions across the north this time. We look at racial justice, we look at issues of power, uh, the whole devolution debate, the nonsense, I don't even like the words, levelling up debate and all that stuff. And so, we have, so I've been its chair for the last five years. And so we are a social platform and that's it. We talk about other people. We talk about we create an environment for other people to get their voices heard. And from the east to the west of the north to be able to connect about how beautiful and amazing the north can be. Fantastic. That sounds like a really important balancing force there against that kind of more more business led approach. Great. Um, Edna, as a final question. What bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or in a charity or social enterprise who wants to make an impact in the way that you have? Um, I think it's just to be be determined about what the thing. Be, sorry, not determined. Be clear about the things that you want to speak out about. Just okay. um, make sure that you uh, absolutely know your subject and that you feel that you've rehearsed. So there's two things to that, Andrew. One is being confident, making sure that you've got the right people around you who are helping you to have have your voice heard. And if you haven't, then just find ways and means of um, getting your voice and opinion heard. Um, and that might be through different methods. It might be through, you know, writing a thought piece or it might be recording something and sending it to somebody. Now, it doesn't always have to be that you speak in a meeting or something. So make sure that you do get your voice heard. But the thing that's driven me the most is that there is just so much to do. If I see um, negative data, then I think, well, I need to go, I need to fix that. I will personally uh, take responsibility to so keep looking at data keep looking at 
trends and issues Mm -hmm. and keep well read about your subject but read around your subject so that you become familiar with what the external factors are that are leading to things in your workplace being challenging or understand more about the population that you may be working with or serving so it's not taking it into the realms of a hobby, but it is make your work of interest to you. Don't just have it as a thing that you do when you go to work, because life isn't work and work isn't life. And most work can have a wider interest and impact. So keep growing your capacity and capability to speak up about your work. Yeah. And then the final part for me is just seeking out really good people. Yeah. And be re- remember that there will be haters, and I've, blame me, I've had my share of those people. But I've also put a carav- caravans around myself when I've known that I'm going to be under attack. And so the thing is to learn to be strategic, learn to just know that if you're going to do something, Thing that's unpopular or challenging that you've got you've built your resilience strategy ready to deal with it because yeah. because people will come back at you if you're trying to displace somebody's direction of travel or you're wanting to get your own priorities above someone else's or whatever it might be but just have your own resilience and your own very good people around you who will you know back you up when you need them yeah, there's a lot in there, Edna, that's really useful advice. I think the bit which really jumped out at me is when I'm in a meeting and I, I feel like I'm sat in the same room as a really impressive person, um, sometimes it can feel like they're just talking off the top of their head. and you know. But I, actually, that person will have put the preparation time in, will have studied the figures, will have read up, will have talked to people. There is no... And I think maybe our previous prime minister exposed some of this, Boris Johnson, that you don't, it doesn't always work just to turn up and bluff your way through something. You know, the power of personality can really take you so far, but um, preparation and being on top of the detail and being so familiar with the detail that when you express it, it feels very natural is so important and so important in terms of being an effective communicator as well. Yeah, no, completely, Andrew. Absolutely. And often if we're talking about issues that we know are marginal in the room, then you've got to be even more on it in terms of style, substance, well-rehearsed, counter-arguments, all that kind of thing, because you know that you're trying to take a subject from the periphery to the centre of the discussion. And so don't don't meet the stereotypes, you know, don't sit there being apologetic, don't sit there being quiet. So there's a whole range of personal interventions. And then, as you say, there's the substance about making sure that you absolutely know your stuff. Yeah. Edna, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you, Andrew. I've really enjoyed it. Well, I always really enjoy talking to Edna and this occasion was no different. I wanted to start with some of the contextual points that Edna made, which I think are incredibly important for all public services. Number one is that as a as a people, as a population, we've been very compliant, to use Edna's words, over the past couple of years because we're just so 
exhausted and we're still a bit exhausted but as Edna points out people will start to get back to normal and will start to feel quite angry about what's happened and that's not necessarily the fault of anyone but you know it hasn't been a great couple of years so we need to just be very aware that the mindset of everybody will start to change from compliance to kind of right I'm expecting things to get better now and that's a really important contextual point the second is that short-term challenges will always trump strategy unfortunately particularly when funding is tight and that's really important when thinking about reforming public services that if you think of anything like children's social care adult social care nhs reforms there's a huge amount of pressure in the system at the minute and finding the headspace if you're a leader to do any long-term strategic thinking will be very difficult but at the same time it is important that leaders find that time to think strategically or we will find ourselves in a downward spiral and that's not where anyone wants to be and the final contextual point is around the wider determinants of health and edna correctly identified money as being the key thing here and for me this is about supporting people particularly vulnerable people to get economically active and lead more fulfilling lives now of course that's not possible for everybody but supporting people through public health services mental health services adult social care is incredibly important to help marginalized people back into a fulfilling life and the thought of those services now being cut just makes no sense to me if we are serious about growing the economy because unemployment levels are quite low and a big driver of that is the fact that a lot of people have become economically inactive as in they've chosen to exit the workforce or they haven't been able to get back into work after the pandemic this is to do with health conditions particularly in over 50s so if we're serious about growing the economy and particularly as the government has a position on immigration which doesn't help the growth of the economic workforce then we've really got to support people who could work back into work and that means adult social care that means public health that means mental health services and that means the whole myriad of third sector support services that edna was talking about today getting the right funding so on those third sector services delivered by charities and social enterprises i want to talk a little bit about the alternative provider federation that edna is the chair of now this is a grouping just as a reminder this is a grouping of charities and social enterprises in Greater Manchester. And what this model hopes to demonstrate is that as well as third sector providers being flexible, having great innovation, being very connected to communities, this model hopes to demonstrate that they can also be organized and disciplined at scale. And that's incredibly important. As Edna pointed out, you can make a big NHS trust bigger and you might get some efficiencies there but will you get more effectiveness and i think that's a really important question in my experience of working with fantastic third sector organizations is that the quality of services they they deliver is extremely high and i think everyone should be watching this because if it works it could be replicated elsewhere in the country and finally it's worth highlighting edna's point about leaders particularly in large organizations staying in touch with the front line and that is definitely a delicate balance because in larger organizations you do have hierarchies 
And the last thing you want to do is undermine your middle management who are trying to do their best as well. But it is so important that the leaders who make the big decisions have an idea of what's going on the front line, have a feel for it, have an understanding of what their frontline staff are going through. So that takes great skill, but every leader should be striving to do that, I think. So that's everything for this episode. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I really enjoyed talking to Edna. I hope you did too. To not miss any future episodes, please make sure you follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. There are some great ones. Recent one with Helen Bernard from Pro Bono Economics on the cost of living crisis was fantastic. I would recommend that. Thank you.